Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host, and we have with us Mike Tenbush. He has a great book called The Jonathan Effect, Helping Kids and Schools Win the Battle Against Poverty. Well, we don't talk about that subject enough. And just to let you know who Mike is, he's the CEO of Uncommon Solutions. And he's also the co-founder of an organization that serves 14,000 kids each year. And he has led an effort to turn around Detroit's most challenging high schools as vice president of the United Way for Southeastern Michigan. Mike, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you, Michael. I almost feel like I'm not worthy. This subject is uh, (laughs) you're really getting your hands dirty in the inner cities and helping uh, schools everywhere. And uh, tell us just briefly, what is the Jonathan effect? It refers to really uh, what Jonathan did in the Bible. And when you think about it, um, you know, I always wanted to be like David, right? Like the one after God's own heart. And here was somebody who had slain a giant and had actually, you know, been victorious in war and had people singing his praises. But he was actually alone and running for his life in the wilderness. Um, when the son of the king, like, you know, the first king, the son of the first king of Israel, the gentleman who could have just lived a comfortable life and went on probably to become king, went out and saw David. He went out to the wilderness and he saw him and he said, don't forget who you are. He reminded him who he was in the Lord said, you're going to be the king of Israel one day. And then he said, and I'm going to help you get there. And uh, so the Jonathan effect is really what happens when people go outside of themselves, go out to find young people who might be running for their lives and have already slain their own giants, but help them remind who they are in the Lord. You're going to be a great dad one day or a great father, a great husband. You're going to get into school and I'm going to make sure that you get a good job one day. I'm going to help you do that. That's what it means to be Jonathan. Hmm. And when we do, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no, no, please. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, when we do this, the effect of it is you don't just help that one person's life, because the young people in, uh, in high schools today, they're going to be the next generation of husbands and wives and parents. So what you're doing pretty quickly is impacting the lives horizontally of their brothers and sisters or the people they hang out with. But you're also impacting their family tree, the, the, the spouses, the spouse they have one day, the children they have one day. And so the Jonathan effect happens when lots of people from the church um, come alongside a school and do this with young people. The impact that that can have, it's not one on one. It quickly becomes, you know, a pr- exponents of, of, of 10, how, how big that impact can be. You mentioned in your book, too, that, you know, the pressure on um, teachers, I was going to say students, but teachers, you know, it would be great in the ideal world, so you say, that they could just teach and people would be gripped by the subject matter. But that's just not the case because people really aren't all in some of the inner cities. They don't have the kind of upbringing that they could really have the life skills, if you will, to focus and so forth. So you mentioned there's undue pressure on these teachers and they burn out. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think for the last 10 years or more, we've done um, a lot of damage to a great profession of teaching by holding on to this belief that every school just needs a great principal and great teachers, and then the kids will be okay. And, you know, I, I have to admit, uh, while I was running an education initiative at the United Way in Detroit, I thought that was the case. And we put a lot of work into making sure every kid had a great teacher and, and a great school leader. And what we found was that simply wasn't enough. 
And what we also found was that that placed such a high burden on the teachers that they became the scapegoat. Yes. All that's wrong, pretty much, in America's cities, it's the schools and it's the teachers. And I just got to tell you, I found the opposite to be true. I found teachers in uh, urban schools to be amazingly bright and hardworking and dedicated and compassionate, thoughtful, engaging, all the things you want your teachers to be, but it still wasn't enough. And it made me think we've really got to figure out a way to just increase the army, bring in the Calvary mm-hmm. positive caring adults who could really show kids how much they care. And you have to be kind of like a sociologist. I'm sure you have been because, and maybe a psychologist too, and working with the, with different kids, but they can't be everything, these teachers, can they? I mean, they can't be the parents. They can't be, they have to have some sort of uh, root or background. And that's where you come in, where you say, hey, they're people who can take an interest in someone other than themselves and take an interest in um, seeing something in these kids that they don't see in themselves and be that mentor. And, you know, when I think about the upbringing that people have and the kind of impact it's made in their lives, if you don't have something like that, uh, you're going to fail. And that's really what I want to discuss a lot more with you as far as the struggle uh, in the inner cities. How do you get around all that? Well, so we had an initiative in, in Detroit where we were trying to turn around every one of the failing high schools and we had 15 high schools in this network uh, across the city and some of the suburbs, all working to move to 80% graduation rates where the rate had been less than 60% for, for years and years. And what we saw was that when companies and churches started sending their people into the school buildings, it sent a different message to kids because kids are just as bright as anyone else. Yes. And they can see a teacher gets paid to be there. Uh, the principal gets paid to be there. Even nonprofits that get, get grants from organizations get paid to be there. But when people started showing up and just walking the school hallways, and there was no reason to other than I'm here because I love this school, I love the kids in it, and I just want to help where I can, that just it caught kids off guard. Like, I don't want to say it was easy right away. Like, yeah, you want to help? <laughs> yeah. Um, but over time, like their presence and their commitment started to help the kids see their school differently and then ultimately see themselves differently. Yeah. And you have a study here. It says one of the most provocative studies I have read about education centered on this question asked for students. You say, what grade are you afraid to bring home for fear of punishment? And for the Asian students, the answer was anything less than a minus. For white students, the answer was a B minus, and for African American and Hispanic students, the answer was anything less than a C minus. And and then you say, if there's one area in which all kids should have a growth mindset, it is in their ability to earn an A. I thought that was interesting. And actually, I knew someone from high school that got in trouble. He was um, Asian for getting less than an A minus. My parents would be happy about that. That's, that's the interesting thing. So that study that I quote, I think is about 20 years old. It's called the trouble threshold. And I've consistently, since I read that study, will ask that question to a group of kids, especially when it's a diverse group of kids, you know, 10 to 20 kids in the setting. And I'll ask that same question to them. And certainly there are exceptions, but for the most part, that still holds true to this day. And then what I share with them is I ask, what's the difference between a C and an A? And the, the answer is it's hard work. <laughs> yeah, right. Which someone told me that. But but what I think really helps is when kid, is we talk about this fixed mindset and a growth mindset. But if 
a lot of kids without somebody in their life expecting challenging more for, for them have this fixed mindset that I'll always get what I always get. So it's it, it doesn't make sense to work hard. But so how did this happen? I mean, how did this happen for you? Now, you know, for I understand that you were a successful lawyer. Is that correct? Or am I wrong about that? You, I know that you... Uh, I was a lawyer. And so I've spent 20... Well, I uh, graduated from U of M Law and I'm a lawyer. I, I mean, I'm a member of the bar here in Michigan. I've re- actually spent the last 20 years trying to affect change in Michigan, uh, in Detroit specifically. So, yes, I'm a lawyer who works on social change. Yeah, interesting. I mean, something really happened. I want to find out about that. Our audience does, too, because, uh, you know, you wanted – I know you had some super loans uh, that you had to deal with, and then you felt the pressure to make a lot of money. But what happened to you exactly? What made you change? So I actually grew up um, and saw a lot of violence as a kid and um, was asking the Lord from an early age, why do you allow this to happen? And, and I heard him say very clearly to me, this isn't my will, but it is my will that you do something. Um, I just didn't know how. So, you know, I taught for a couple of years out of college and I ended up hearing the Lord say, truly, go to law school and start your own nonprofit because I was teaching at a nonprofit. Um, and that's because that was really the what began my work um, in the nonprofit field and in education. It kind of came together that way. But what I've seen over and over again is that the Lord has a lot more people than me whose heart is for the cities and trying to make them safer, more engaging places for children and their families like for a long time, I have to say, I felt a little bit unique. Um, here's this lawyer who's given up a law, law career to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the last five years or so, it just feels like the heart of America has really turned to its cities. And I think there are a lot of people trying to figure out what to do now. Yeah. And I look at a lot of information about you, and all of a sudden it came up Joel Olstein's page and his Facebook page, and he's promoting your book. And I'm thinking, okay, so I read a little bit more, and he was in Detroit, and you were praying, and Lord, maybe an introduction could be handy there. And uh, he was really on board with what you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about his help? Yeah, that was so. One of the things that I do is run a youth training center in the afternoons here in Detroit, where we develop great readers and great people. And it's called the Say Detroit Play Center. And when I heard Joel Osteen was doing the Night of Amer- America here last summer, I literally said, "Lord, please show me how to connect with him." I really? Joel Osteen, and would love to, uh, you know, at least meet him. And I got an email a little bit later in the week from his church saying they're sending hundreds of volunteers to Detroit. Wow. and They'd love to work with us. So. Um, so we had this blighted alleyway around our building that maybe 70 or 80 of their people worked with the kids from the neighborhood, cleaned out all the blight, painted the garages. And then they, we put our artists from Detroit, painted murals on them. And one had this sign that said, I'm a victor. And then Joel Olstein came in and signed it and then uh, actually led a game with police first pastors and softball. And we had a, a praise concert in the park in Detroit, which uh, all of Joel Olstein's friend now his friends yeah. came and played. It was just an amazing day in Detroit with Joel Olsen. Yeah, because something like this, you have to really light a fire. I mean, the Lord has to convict. And when I was looking at his uh, Facebook page, uh, he was really, really on for this. And uh, so, you know, the Lord really opened up his heart. And so how does it work with you? 
how do you get people involved to to do what you want? And you want people to go to the schools, uh, churches, if you will, and pray about it and have the initiative to really kind of help make yourself available and say, hey, what are the areas that we can help? We want to help you. Uh, what we'd like to do is put the Ten Commandments on every school. I'm just kidding. That's not <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do that. But I mean, they will let you. But you know, how, how open are people? to letting people get involved with the schools when you knock on their door? So this is not my idea in any way. This is something that really, uh, Dr. Tony Evans out of Dallas, um, for the most part, really has started and led this movement about 10 years ago with his church at Oak Cliff. And, um, and it took off in Portland, and then it spread to Detroit, and now it's in Houston. And it's actually in cities across America where churches... And a lot of times when it's, it's happened through one or two ways. One, a school will just call the church and say, hey, we're having troubles with discipline. We don't know what to do. Is there any way you could send some um, people from your church over just to walk the hallways? That's what happened in Dallas. What happened in Portland and Detroit is churches got together because they wanted to do something in addition to a prayer. Like they would have a prayer meeting or a prayer walk in the city, and they wanted to do something more lasting. And so they do a, a citywide cleanup. And what happened in these cleanups is they said, you know what, we don't just want to clean up this one school, we really want to partner with this school to help them with what their needs are. And so this gets back to my point that I think the heart, not just of America, but the church in America has really turned towards the cities. And as churches look to the schools or to the city and say, what can we do? The best thing that you can do where all the kids go for eight hours a day is to the schools. So so what what we're encouraging pastors to do is to really look for a church um, that would be a good fit for them. I mean, to pray about it, to talk to their congregation about it, talk to their leadership team about it. And typically there will be for any church in the nation that's in that's near a, a city within a 20 minute ride of their church, there is likely to be a school that desperately needs the partnership, the friendship of that church and the people in it with the school and with those students. Are they afraid of liability? I mean, say, hey, you know, you can't talk about Jesus here. You know, you can come in. I know you're part of the church. You want to help. You know, we need uh, discipline issues or we have problems with the bathroom and you can clean that up. But I mean, does it get kind of sticky in some areas or is it just kind of, you know, how do you, you never know what you're going to get, I guess. Right. So there's a couple of things to go on. Sometimes I want to be clear. <clears throat> Excuse me, Michael. We'll edit um, that out. <laughs> okay. Um, sometimes schools don't really know how to work with partners. You know, they'll say we need more um, of this or more of that, but they don't really know how to reach out. So it's not always easy. Um, but what we have found is that when a pastor and maybe one or two members of his leadership team walks into a school and sits with, down with the principal and says, hey, look, we know you're the experts here. We're not. We know what your kids need. We don't. But if you want to share with us what are the one, two, or three ways we can help you, we'd love to see what we can do. And when a pastor starts with that question, how can we help you, it will fundamentally set them apart from the other thousand meetings that principal is going to have in, in the yes. year. As w the first person to really say, how can we help you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, people always respond to that. And no matter what you do, if you ask anyone in life, how can I help? 
uh, really does open up opportunities, that's for sure. The central narrative of your book is about a relationship with you and a young man by the name of Kivon. And uh, I really always kind of fast forwarded to those pages because it was gripping to see, you know, this was real raw, real life stuff. And, uh, you know, you were kind of in your world with your family and kids, and then the Holy Spirit tugged away at you. And then you really were all in as far as, uh, you know, giving yourself over to mentoring this young man and all the different kind of trials that he went through. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Oh, yeah. that I mean, you talk about an amazing kid. So just really quickly, in the first pages of the Jonathan Effect, I share with the story of when I met Kivon, he literally challenged me to a fight um, because he had just come home from winter break and had gotten into this awful fight with his mother where she said some horrible things. And then some strangers talking to him in a room saying, you know, you got to stop cussing and I understand you. And he said, man, you don't understand a thing about me. And in, in long story short, instead of fighting, I said, you know what, why don't we, you and I go have lunch together? So we went out for lunch. And uh, what I saw was not a big, bad, mean kid. I just saw a funny kid who was really hurting. And I said to him, Kivan, look, you know more, more about the streets than I do, but I do know more about school and success in in establishing a job and raising a family than you. So why don't we do this thing together? I'll help you where I can, you help me where you can, and let's just start this friendship. That was almost seven years ago. He was, and he was just 14 at the time. Within a year, um, he was homeless and uh, his girlfriend was having a baby. So here's a 15-year-old homeless father. Hmm. And, and the Jonathan effect tells the story of what it's like to be a friend to him, the best friend I could be with the limited resources I have. But through these amazing trials and tribulations, our friendship has gr- prospered and grown, and he has prospered and grown, and, and he's making it despite some really tough things going on. Yeah, I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, and I don't know how much you can say, really, but... Um you know, I'm excited about what happened, you know, because we're reading all about this young man and, you know, uh, what exactly is the status of him right now? I mean, I don't want to give it away, but. Yeah, so I'm really pleased to report, um, you know, so you, you'll read in the John Anderson effect that he had a couple of jobs that he lost. But last year, for the first time, um, he found a job on his own, not one that I worked through my friendships, but from his own networks, which is a huge thing, like knowing how to work your networks to get a, to land a good job, um, became a certified nursing assistant. And then this uh, just a couple of months ago, he actually um, was able to take that job and not, you know, quit or not get fired and look for a new job. But he found another job in better conditions, making more money. And now he's one more level away from um, even making more money. So it's really been fascinating and, and totally fulfilling to me to see somebody not just learn how to get a job, but learn how to continue to work the networks and work hard to get promoted and, and to get and to get new levels of uh, responsibility. So mm-hmm. it's not again, it's not easy, but he's he's being an amazing father, a hardworking kid. And he's successfully taken care of himself seven years after being homeless with with a newborn. Mike, maybe you can flesh this out for us, because what really is the dilemma here? Because a lot of people don't understand. They figure, you know what, you may come from an inner city, an urban environment, and just study harder, you know, and just uh, get a job and, and, and quit all this drama. But it's not as easy as that. And, you know, some of the life skills that we take for granted are not there. Some of the um, the mentoring and so forth. 
forth is not there. So there's a lot of disadvantages. It's not just study and do well. And you mentioned that a lot of these kids have a fifth grade education as a senior in high school. And so what really is the situation here? You know, that people can grow up in poverty and it's not that, just that easy. Okay, my mom and dad don't have any money. I'm going to really study hard. Why is it so hard for people to get themselves out of that kind of predicament? What is that vicious cycle that you see? So, some of it, I think, is, is you know, I, I have this experience that every person, really in their 30s and 40s, goes through this horrible life trauma. It could be cancer, unemployment, divorce, loss of a child, like these really hard things where there's kind of this uh, midnight hour uh, of the soul type of experience for maybe a year or two or three years. What I hope this book um, helps people to see is that for kids in poverty, they're going through those things for most of their lives up until they're 14 or 15. You know, So in, Kiman, in Kivan's experience, excuse me, uh, you know, his, he never knew his dad. But what was worse was in this most recent fight, his mother had said to him, Look, the only reason you were ever born was so I could get a welfare check. Mm. That's just such an awful thing for a mother to say to her son. So it's not that Kivan's not smart or doesn't want to do well. It's that he's dealing with some real hurt, like some real, you know, my dad doesn't care about me and my mom says I'm worthless, basically. Like, those are horrible things to, to bring into school with you. And so that's why I think this Jonathan effect is so powerful. Because when somebody else, and not just one, one person, but one or two or three people can come into your life and really speak life into you and remind you of who you are in the Lord, I, I, I see powerful things happen. Now, usually people don't care about things like that. I hate to say it, but I mean, we do think about ourselves, try to make as much money as you can. I mean, if, if you're in the world, you do. But uh, given your background, where is the sensitivity coming from? I mean, I'm talking just as far as your, your upbringing or uh, did someone introduce you in, in a way that uh, take an interest in you that you never forgot? And how did you become or have this uh, call so much to be a mentor? You know, yeah, and that's such a great because I don't know. I don't know that I see myself as a mentor. And so I don't know the, the word itself. It's just to be a great friend. And just one example um, here in Michigan, uh, our governor Granholm for the, for eight years. Um, they're now in Berkeley, but her husband is a guy named Dan Mulhern. And I just told the story um, on his blog where he was a student of my father's. And when I came from home from college, um, and I told my dad, I just wanted to do something positive in Detroit. I had lunch with this one guy, one of his former students named Dan Mulhern, the smartest kid he ever taught. Dan had this lunch with me, saw something in me, and wrote letters to people to tell them they should interview me. The long and the short is for 26 years after just one lunch, this guy has never stopped being a great connector for me, a great advocate, a great friend. And it's not that we get together and go bowling once a week, but he just always kind of, he checks in. Hey, Mike, how are things going? And it doesn't take much to just kind of check in with me, encourage me, and then where he can, make a phone call or two to help me. I mean, it's just one example, but that's why I think of it more as a friend than a mentor. What it takes is going out for lunch with somebody or having a cup of coffee with somebody. But then with cell phones and texts and everything else, Facebook, you can just become friends in such sustainable 
in almost um, easier ways, but still have as big a difference as if you were spending an hour a week with somebody for a year of their life. Yeah, and this is really a big thing for you. I mean, this is your life, isn't it? I mean, this is full time, and it has been. And uh, it, you must every morning, you know, you must be excited about that. Not only other people who want to get on board, but uh, you know, other individuals who have that same call where the Lord has worked in their heart. Uh, is that the reward? What's what's the big reward for you? Well, yeah, so I actually do a part of my book where I say, I don't think you should do something out of sacrifice. Like, nobody wants you to be their friend because you see it as a sacrifice, right? Like, I think you want to see it in your self-interest. And so part of my thing here is this whole generation of millennials that are of age and coming of age, and those kids, these young people want to make a difference in the world. So if you're running a company, they don't just want to make help your company make money. They want to feel like your company's making a difference. Maybe more importantly, if you're the pastor of a church and your church is growing old and you don't know how to reach out, reach millennials, I'm telling you, if your church starts to make a difference in impacting the whole trend line of poverty or fatherlessness and crime in a neighborhood, that's a church that people are going to want to go to. And so, while yes, while my friendship with Kivan has been deeply gratifying, I've never done it out of a sense like this is something I have to do. I do it because he's a funny guy and I enjoy my time with him. I also do it because I love my kids to see the challenges of the world and and for them to have a heart for others. And then ultimately, I think it's great for companies and churches to be making a meaningful difference. I think that's what's going to set them apart with the generation of millennials coming up. Yes, and as Vice President of the United Way for Southeastern Michigan, do you feel that you could be led into the uh, maybe the new administration as far as any kind of initiatives you want to get into government for this? Uh, so this is one thing. So Betsy DeVos is the new education uh, secretary. She's had this long run in Michigan and actually spending millions of dollars across the country to help promote school choice. And I'm a big fan of school choice. I think it's great for every family, regardless of their income level or zip code, to be able to choose the best schools for their kid. But the impact of that is there are going to be schools where parents don't know how to make good choices that are going to have higher and higher levels of concentrations of poverty. That's what we found in Detroit. And that's the time in the history of the church it's always been the church who's come in where the times are the hardest, way back to the plagues in Rome. I think that's the calling of the church. So uh, I'm kind of answering your question by saying I think I can help this administration the most by helping folks see where they can be the most effective. And that's really in these neighborhood high schools where parents aren't making, aren't able to make the best choices for their kids. And kids really need somebody else in their lives to come in. I think that's what that's what we can do as Jonathan. Yeah, I'd like to ask you, too, because, you know, we're here in a brand new administration coming up. OK, so when you review all these things that have happened from, you know, past to presidents and initiatives and so forth, where have they go wrong or gone wrong? Uh, and as far as the Jonathan effect, how is that feeling that need? Uh, so where have we gone wrong and where can we do better? Wow, I always like to think of what have we, what can we learn? <laughs> so, I think um, Secretary Duncan did some amazing things under President Obama in terms of this race to the top, and how can we create more competitive, high poverty schools? Um, but I do think what I spoke about a little earlier is true: is that we put a little bit too much emphasis just on the school. I mean, just on the principal or just on the teachers. 
And I think um, what we need to do a little bit more of is to see this, how can other people besides the school and the teacher um, really have have a role in helping helping that school? Um, you know, it, you, there's 40 or 50 years of school history here that, that has some fascinating ups and downs. Um, but the thing is, parents are always going to look for the best schools for their kids. How can we help those schools with don't have parents who are doing that? I think that's going to be the question hmm. that helps America really confront the challenges of poverty. Yeah, because I'm sure you've seen just about every kind of study and you looked at the numbers and you're a lawyer, you know, so you scrutinize and <laughs> and try to figure all this out. Where we go wrong here and, and how can we help? And is that is that like an ongoing thing, always trying to, to look at, uh, you know, you, you can't convince people in government to make these changes unless you use these facts and figures. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, so just one example is I do think we did something really wise with No Child Left Behind in 2001 with both Bush and Kennedy. We started really looking at where is each school not just doing on their overall graduation rate, but by ethnicity, by special education. And that's when we really started to see, well, we're not doing nearly as well as we thought we are. So. You know, there's a, you can certainly look back at all of the different policies and see all the mistakes we made. But I try, in, in a world where we're very critical and in a sector where we're very critical, to try and lift up some of the, the good things and, and good decisions we've made. So what's the biggest challenge, Mike? I mean, you're getting people like Joel Osteen excited and, of course, you know Tony Evans, who led this initiative and so forth. But what's the biggest challenge that you face? That's a great question. I So I think it is this sense of hopelessness that can be so pervasive in neighborhood high schools. Um, you know, in this one school, which we work at Cody High School um, in Detroit, we've seen them overcome hopelessness. We see where it's safe and where, kid, where there's not fights every day. There's fights a couple times a year as opposed to a couple times a day. You're still at this point where they're 13, 14 years into their life before they get into the school, and they are reading at the third and fourth grade level, and the world requires so much more of them, a hard work ethic to show up on time every day. When they're not getting to school on time every day, if you just suspend them and put them out for not showing up on time, you're only going to lose them. Yes. So the real intellectual challenge for me is how do you create this work ethic, this belief in the importance of hard work? when everybody around them is telling them the opposite or has become so complacent with the opposite. That's really where I think the biggest challenge that we face mm -hmm. helping helping kids be successful for life. Yeah, because I'm thinking that, I mean, I'm not trying to be cute about this, but people are in the streets, many of them are selling drugs and they're doing all kinds of illegal things. This is a generalization, though, but it exists, obviously. And I'm thinking, you know, is there a good, if you will, transference of uh, skills here uh, to be business people. No, you actually hit it on the head. And it's not just drugs. There's just a lot of ways to make easy money without working hard, so to speak, in the neighborhood surrounding these schools. So how to almost and, – and people are rational. Like kids can look at it and say, wow, I can work hard and study hard and go to school and take on debt and maybe get a degree, or I can go do X and Y and Z and be thought of more highly at my age and make more money and not have to wait six, seven years. So – what may seem irrational to us when you're in friendships with kids, and you see this story in the Jonathan effect where Kevon started selling drugs at one point, and I was just so relieved that he actually had food on the table and a place to stay. 
that I wasn't mad at him for selling drugs. I was relieved he was actually safe. I mean, from a very rational perspective, I saw the challenges he faced and wasn't sure what else he could do at that point in his life. And that sounds awful, but I'm just telling you, it can be that bad. Um, I would so, imagine that, yeah. Yeah, so in this case, you know, so I made this deal with him that, that I said, look, Kivan, my wife and I will pay, pay the first month's rent on an apartment for you, which was a big deal for us, but he was living with his girlfriend. I said, we'll, we'll get you out, we'll get you in your own place, but you have to get a legal paycheck. And as soon as you get that, We'll put together the six or seven hundred dollars to get you an apartment, but we need you to do this first, and you know, and that is ultimately what happened. Yeah, because I'm thinking there maybe you know there a transference of uh, of skills. There could be people who are good business people only because. I mean, I hate to say it, but when with drugs or illegal activity, a lot of times it's like running a a business, you know, and so. It is, but it's not one where you have to show up on time and things like that. So this, I mean. The challenge here, entrepreneurship, that work ethic and that and, uh, conscientiousness. It's not easy, but here's here's what I do feel strongly about: the harder we work with this generation, the more successful their children will be. Yes. But if we give up on this generation, their kids don't have a chance. Now, where do we talk about Jesus here? I mean, as far as uh, how does that come into play? Because you're a devout Christian, and um, so. There's no proselytizing, if you will, in the, in the schools. But do you find that there's an element where they have, obviously, the Lord opens up an opportunity for them to hear about about Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the big thing you can't do is go into a school and try and organize a Bible study. I mean, that's, the Supreme Court's pretty clear on that. But when you're a friend with somebody and you're in relationship, you can talk about whatever you want because you're friends. Um and so with Kivan, you know, he would just hear me. Um, I'd ask him if I could pray for him whenever we were together. Uh, when we talk about life, I'd share scripture with him. And ultimately, I'd, I'd say, look, the studies are pretty clear. You should be in church. It's just going to be better for you. You're going to get, you know, more support, this and that. Like, I mean, we talked about that stuff a lot. But as you'll read in the Jonathan effect, it's about three quarters of the way through where he does get arrested for um, selling heroin. And he says to me over lunch, he says, Mike, I just feel like this this curtain is falling down on me. And I said, it is because you keep trying to serve yourself instead of the Lord. Mm. At some point, you're going to have to make a choice who you want to serve. And and you, I hope that your readers get to enjoy, your listeners get to enjoy the book because he makes a choice and it changes his life. And I'm just really excited about that. Absolutely. And with us is Mike Tenbush, and he's the author of a great book called The Jonathan Effect, Helping Kids in Schools Win the Battle Against Poverty. Now, just to be real brief here, and I want to just let everybody know what The Jonathan Effect comes down to. It comes down to, in your book, Four Critical Ways. Okay, so I thought I'd mention it. And the relationship is entered in freely by both people. That's number one. Anything you want to add to that? No, yeah, I think that's a big thing. Just sometimes in mentoring, you know, it, it's, it's well, this kid, there's something wrong with this kid, so you need to go help him. No, this is when you're hanging around uh, young people and you say, you know what, there's something about him and he sees something about you and you say, I think we, sh- I think we should be purposeful about a friendship. I think that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Number two, it does not have a formal time requirement other than what is needed to continue a meaningful friendship. Yeah, kind of the same thing there. A lot of our best mentoring organizations, and they're very good ones, ask people to commit a year, like be together once a week for a year. In this, it's really like, look, you don't have to do something once a week. 
but you have to help this young person be successful in life. And that's going to take a lot longer than a year and a lot less often than a week. I feel like David Letterman here. Number three, (laughs) (laughs) it is based on helping one person get to a specific long-term goal in life, like marriage, college, or the start of a career with a much farther horizon than traditional mentoring programs. Yeah, and I go back to Jonathan in the Bible there. I mean, he looked at David and said, you're going to be king one day. And I think the same thing is true here. If your church comes alongside a school and you're working in a booster club or you're going to a school cleanup and you'll see a kid two or three times and you'll say, wow, I see you're good with numbers. I bet you could be an accountant. And when you see that thing in them that the Lord puts on your heart, that's when you can say, I can help you get into a good community college one day or I can help you be successful in math. Those are the types of things that you're saying, this I see part of your identity here, and I'm going to work with you on that. And then number four, let me say number four, uh, from the Jonathan commitment, and this is what I learned in uh, kindergarten for sure. It's based on mutual friendship where both people are expected to give and to receive. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> that's good because I'm quoting myself. <laughs> you know, like with Kivan, I, I do understand that. of the time, I'm the one who's going to call him. I'm going to pursue him. In some ways, it's like a father-son relationship. That's okay. But there are other times where I'll say to him, Kevon, look, you're not holding up your end of the bargain here. You have to be doing this or be doing that for this friendship to work. And and he gets that. Like, it can't just be me trying to help him. Um, It's got to be mutual that he enjoys the friendship and, and is engaging in it as well. All right, so someone is listening to this program, okay? It could be uh, maybe a church leader or someone who attends church or just uh, what would you say to these people and what would you hope that their heart would be open for to, to join hands with what you're doing? Yeah, I, I would say um, we are at this crucial time in America where our inner cities are reeling from hurt and from pain. And that's the place where the church is supposed to be. That's the place where Christ is and Christ calls us to be. So I would just ask, you know, pastors and leadership teams just to pray and see if God will show them a school near them that could use their help. And not just to um, have the ears to hear, but the, the heart to obey. And when he put lays the school on their heart, to just go ahead and call that principal, take him out to coffee and, um, and see what comes out of that. Yes. And you mentioned the giant of urban poverty can be defeated. Once again, Mike Tenbush. The Jonathan Effect, helping kids and schools win the battle against poverty. And you have a pretty good, um, I guess someone, his name is Mitch Album. I think we've heard of him Tuesdays with Maury. What's your relationship with him? He gives a two thumbs up, if you will. Uh, Mitch is a great guy. He is a um, just huge, although he's from Philadelphia, he loves the city. He does <laughs> a lot of great things in Detroit. And he asked me to work with him on creating this youth uh training center that I run in the afternoons now. So Mitch is a good friend as well as my boss every afternoon over at the State Detroit Play Center. Mike Timbush, thank you for being on the program and for inspiring so many. I know that uh, it takes a real sacrifice and also just an interest in another person to to do all this. And uh, you're changing people's lives and hearts. Thanks for being on the program. God bless you. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Michael.